0: You can turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Colossians chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, let me direct you to Bibles scattered throughout the worship area. Uh, they, I think this week they're on the floor, up, up under various chairs. If you don't have one and you don't see one, flag somebody down. I'm sure they'd be happy to pass one to you. We're going to be in Colossians 4, wrapping up our series through this uh, this letter of Paul. Now, before I get into the sermon, I want to make a special announcement about part of our uh, our life together as a church that will be kicking back off again in just a few weeks, and that is our small group system. If you look in your worship guide, you should see a brilliantly colored uh, small group sign-up sheet. Everybody see those? Small group sign-up sheet. Um, w- the way that small groups work here, they fill a very specific purpose for us. This this is a system that is designed to give us accountability as we seek holiness and seek to battle sin. It's designed to give us deeper relationships that are rooted in and fueled by the gospel. And it's designed to be the front lines in pastoral care for our church as we go through the ups and downs of life, as we have children, as we go through loss. This is These groups are the front lines for us to provide care to each other. Those are the three things, accountability, deeper relationships, and mutual care. And for those three things to be accomplished best, we think it's very important that these groups remain small and that they remain stable. So for that reason, we ask people to sign up so that we can very carefully control the number of people in each group so it doesn't get too big, that it doesn't have too many kids or too few college students relative to the other ones. We want to balance these groups out if we can for numbers. And then we ask people to sign up because what we're asking them for is a serious commitment. This is not the same kind of small group that we'll offer on Sunday mornings before each worship service. During that time, we offer a time of teaching. We call it Sunday Bible study or Sunday school. That's a small group, but it doesn't require the same kind of commitment. You can come and go at will or as as it's convenient for you, and it doesn't disrupt the flow of the group. These groups are really highly sensitive for success or failure to whether or not people are committed. So we ask you to sign up because we're asking you to be there, uh, all things being equal. We know things come up and people... People have to miss for whatever reason. But all things being equal, we're asking you to commit to be there regularly. So what the, what the sign-up sheet uh, includes It asks for the basic information about who you are, how many kids you have, how old they are, if you have kids, and then other things that will help us to know how to pair you up with a group. For instance, if you need transportation. I know that, uh, that several of our college students last year needed transportation. We want to know that so we can make sure we've hooked you up with someone who can, who can easily transport you back and forth to your group. And if there's a section on the sheet that says additional information. That's mainly for you if you know your schedule is crazy. We have a lot of people who work in the medical field here or who are on the road a lot. And those two groups, we just, we just know up front that your schedule is not going to allow you to be there every week. And that's okay. If you want to participate in a group, we want to make it possible for you to do that. What we want to avoid is having, you know, five out of the ten people in your group not there every week because they all have crazy schedules or they're all on the road all the time. We want to make sure we sprinkle those of you with special schedule needs throughout the groups to maintain some stability. So that's what we're after. And that's what that's, that sheet is for. If you have any questions about that, you uh, hopefully know how to contact me or Julie Hunt. Julie, raise your hand back here in the back corner, our small groups coordinator. You can find her after the service and we'd be happy to to answer any questions that you have. But, Please, if it at all fits in your schedule, we highly encourage you to participate. These groups are life-shaping, and in a sense, they're the lifeblood of our church. So we'd love for everyone to participate if you can. Now, to Colossians. Colossians chapter 4, bring us to the end of an eight-week, uh, super high-speed journey through this letter of Paul. I'm guessing that all of you, or uh, all, probably all of you, have heard maybe even used that iconic catchphrase, the medium is the message. The medium is the message. It's a phrase coined by a guy named Marshall McLuhan, a communications theory professor who wrote on the impact of things like television or advertising on the way that we think and understand. He was right. He wrote and coined the phrase in the middle of the 60s, the heyday of advertising and the dawn of television in its... I guess you could say in its current form, lots of programming, most everybody having one. Of course, what he meant by that was that what we tend to focus on is the message itself, the content. What we may forget is the impact that the way that content comes to us has on the way that we think and understand the world and interact with it. There's this subtle effect on us that is the message, maybe, behind the scenes. The way we normally use it is probably more like the fact that we say something, how we say something, Shapes how we receive the thing that's said. It shapes how we understand it. Come to come to to grips with it. I think though that the opposite is also true. In some cases, the the medium should be dictated, shaped by the message that you're trying to 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 communicate. That a lot of times there are certain messages that will not be effectively communicated through certain medium. I could probably go come up with lots of announcement or examples of this, but. The one that immediately came to my mind, maybe because I'm bald, is that you, you you probably don't want Justin Bieber doing a Rogaine commercial, right? That that is a medium. You guys know who Justin Bieber is. Is that okay? I thought that I was the one who was out out of touch with popular culture, but I'm getting laughs on that. Justin Bieber, lots of fuzzy hair. He's kind of a teeny bopper, isn't that? What, I think that's what they call him. Anyway, this he is not your he is not your 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 market for Rogaine, and if you if you if you try to sell that product, that message through that medium, it's going to fall flat. It doesn't fit. I think Paul would argue that the the message that is the gospel dictates the medium that you use to communicate that message. That there are good and bad ways to talk about Jesus to outsiders. The point today, I think, of, of, of chapter four verses 2 through 6, is that the nature of the gospel controls how we communicate the message to those who don't follow Jesus. To set the stage, we've come to the end of a long letter. Paul's letter has gone through several steps. He's celebrated Jesus at the beginning of it, trying to set him up, even through this amazing hymn to Christ in chapter 1, as this perfect Savior that doesn't need anything to be added to him for him to, to satisfy all of our needs. He is so perfect that Adding anything to him only takes away from him. It doesn't supplement what you get from him. Then he, then he moved into the implications of this truth. If Jesus is this, if he is this perfect, then he, he is going to play himself out in your life in some very specific ways. Chapter 3 started in on all these details. This is what your life looks like if you truly come to grips with the message about Jesus. And, and this chapter, chapter 4, continues that same thing. What does the truth about Jesus have to do with the way that we live? It brings it to a close. And it does so by framing, how the, by framing the impact of the truth about Jesus that Paul has been explaining all through this letter impacts the way we interact with those who don't know him. This is all, if, the, if most of chapter 3 was about how we interact with each other for the most part in the community of faith, if, if it explained that we're supposed to treat each other with the same grace that has been shown to us in Jesus, then chapter 4 is about how this gospel shapes our relationships with those outside. Now, some claim that Paul's statements in chapter 4 in these first few verses are almost random. And it's true that unlike, we're, unlike the way Paul normally explains things, he, he does just make these statements and he doesn't really do much with them. But that's not to say that they're random. Just because he doesn't give the rationale here doesn't mean that he doesn't have one. The fact is that this, this section of his letter comes on the heels of an entire letter devoted to the gospel and what it looks like. This chapter assumes what he's already said and tries to show us the implications of that gospel for how we interact with others. And that's what we want to tease out this morning. I've got four things, four marks, four truths about what we might call gospel-centered evangelism. I know that's almost a tautology because evangelism is the good news, communicating the good news, and gospel is the good news. But if what we're looking at is what a communication of the good news would look like if it was shaped by the good news itself four truths. Gospel-centered evangelism trusts God for results. It focuses on the message of Christ. It fosters an evangelistic lifestyle, and it speaks appropriately about Christ. We're going to get to those one by one. First, however, if you found it in your Bibles, would you stand with me in honor of God's Word as we read? This is the Word of the Lord from Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Gospel-centered evangelism trusts God for results. What do I mean by that? Paul begins this conclusion to his letter in the same place that he began his letter itself in chapter 1, and that is with prayer. There he was recording what he had prayed for those who, who he was writing to. Here he's calling on them to join him in prayer. Paul's understanding of the gospel, of course, in in, in his understanding, everything rests on God. So Paul gives thanks for what God has already done, and he prays that God would continue to work in lives. And here what he's calling for is these Colossian believers to join him in prayer. And what he says specifically is that he wants them to pray for his ministry, that God would open to us a door for the word. That's in verse 3. What does he mean here? What is it that he's calling on them to pray for? The answer to that question has everything to do with the nature of the gospel. Remember what we're tracing. What is true about the gospel? What is it about the gospel that shapes how we relate it to other people? An open door has, of course, connotations about opportunity, right? Paul wants an open door. And in that, he's saying he wants an opportunity to speak into someone's life. But I think in light of what he said about how the gospel works already through Colossians, it's even more than that. It's not just an opportunity to speak. For him, an open door represents someone, an individual who's ready to hear it. Because ultimately, what he's described as, as that which has to happen if the gospel's to work in somebody is that it requires God to act in them first. It's not just something that gets announced. It's something that transforms. And if it transforms, it's something that only God can use to transform. What he's praying for is that God would prepare people to receive his word. Remember what he prayed back in chapter 1. In chapter 1, he prayed thanksgiving for the gospel, but also that the gospel would keep doing its work. He talked about it as, as, uh, as something like a spiritual understanding that you come to over time, that, that, that God is, in other words, needing to open the eyes so that you see things in a new light that isn't the same as learning a, the answer to a math problem or some sort of fact about history. There's a different kind of knowledge that has to happen for someone to truly connect with the gospel, and it's a spiritual knowledge. It's a perception of that, of that gospel truth as, as real and beautiful, as life-shaping. That's what he's been praying for. And that's what he's calling for them to pray for with him. Remember what else Paul said about the gospel and its work. He described our, our condition before God as that of an enemy. They were hostile, hostile to him and alienated from him. He's described us as dead in our sin in chapter 2. And if these things are true then something has got to happen to us before we truly connect with that gospel. If we're alienated and hostile, we have to be reconciled. If we're dead, we have to be made alive. Otherwise, this word is going to fall on dead ears. And what good are dead ears for hearing a message? He's praying that God would open the door because he knows that the results of his evangelism, of his communication of the gospel, if the gospel itself is true, those results belong to God. And and, and prayer is the only way to activate them. Now, admittedly, this is a picture of salvation as god's work as something that he 's sovereign over and, and and that has led many people to wonder and it's a legit question it's led many people to wonder what why should we have anything to do with it? if God is the one who's got to open eyes, if he's the one who who has to change someone from their status as dead to their status as alive so they can hear and respond to the gospel then then why do we have any part in it? Isn't he just going to do what he's going to do? Doesn't this cut the legs out from under any kind of urgency in evangelism? If you're wondering about this, then you're in good company. And let me first recommend one of the, my favorite books on this subject of all time. It's a book. It's a, it's a classic. I don't even remember when it was written, but it's really old. And it's by a guy named J.I. Packer. It's called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. If you don't have it and you like a copy, come see me and I will facilitate that for you. Gladly. Evangelism and the sovereignty of God. But in short, what Packer and others have said on this is that though, though it's tough to get our minds around, the Bible holds God's sovereignty and our responsibility, God's sovereignty over someone coming to know Jesus and our responsibility to tell them about Jesus, he holds them together in a way that may not completely make sense to us, but that is not a contradiction. That's, just, that's the claim of Scripture. Our prayers and our words are the means that God chooses to use to accomplish His will. Just like you use a hammer to drive in a nail, God chooses in His sovereignty to use us as a tool for accomplishing what He wants to do. It's just that our words on their own, apart from God's work, are not going to be effective. That's why we pray. Far from cutting the legs out from under evangelism... I found that this understanding of God's role in salvation actually motivates and energizes people for evangelism. I think I've told this story here before. I hope you guys forgive me if it's familiar to you. But uh, a few years back, I got the opportunity to travel with a friend who worked in the Muslim world in Central Asia, and he was the supervisor over a lot of other workers in that part of the world, Um, and. Traveling through there, I think the, thing, the biggest impact on me was the fact that it, just the sheer absurdity of the thought that anyone in this world could come to know Jesus. Because everything about their culture and their history and their background worked against it. What is it like for someone who's only known one way of thinking to hear a message about Jesus and all of a sudden just drop everything and believe in this fundamentally different way of looking at things? It just seemed impossible to me. And I, and I asked him what it was like for them to live their whole lives under these conditions. And he said that the reason people were able to do it, to sometimes spend entire careers in places where they don't see any fruit for the gospel at all, is that they trust that ultimately the fruit from evangelism is God's. It's God's responsibility, not theirs. And they trust that God has promised that his word will do its work, and that because he has promised that, he is going to be good to that word, and all they have to be faithful to is what he's called them to do, and that's to teach and explain the message about Jesus. The rest is up to God. So it energized them. It sent them over there to the, against all odds because they truly believed God would be good to his word. It doesn't cut the legs out from under evangelism. It establishes a foundation for evangelism that won't fail because the results are God's. Now, what this looks like, what we're called to in an evangelism that's shaped by the nature of the gospel is a trust in God for results. And what that trust looks like in practice is what Paul calls for here. It's prayer. It's a lifestyle of watchful and thankful prayer. Look at verse two describes it. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. You're always on the lookout for things that you can pray about, for for something to add specific teeth to your prayers. So I'd ask you, does the prayer for opportunity for the gospel factor into your prayer life? Do you find yourself regularly praying for conversion? Do you find yourself praying the gospel into your own life? Do you find you, yourself praying the gospel into the life of other people in our church? One of our membership promises to each other is that we're going to pray for each other. And that means we're praying that the gospel would continue to change us. That it would always seem more and more beautiful to us. Do you find that it factors into your life? Do you find yourself regularly praying for missionaries, people who have given their lives to serve overseas, building the kingdom of God? Do you find yourself praying for individuals that come across your path each week, maybe even in your family or where you work or where you go to school, that you know are not followers of Jesus? Do you find yourself praying for them, actually trusting that God has the power to change them and and that the only way to activate that power, the the means he has ordained and called us to is prayer, not through any kind of self-will? Our small groups, of course, that I mentioned earlier, they're aimed at encouraging this sort of prayer at keeping each other accountable, to be praying for people who don't know Jesus that are in our lives. But I also, before moving on to the next point, I want to suggest another really practical and helpful guide that you can use, especially helpful for praying for the, the kingdom of God in the rest of the world. There's a book called Operation World. Operation World. I think you can get it at Amazon. Again, like, like with the Packer book. If you want it and you don't have it, talk to me and I'll see what I can do to help you get it. Operation World. It is a comprehensive guide to all the nations of the world. My understanding is it's all the nations of the world. Something about their people, uh, demographic information, populations, main religious affiliations—all that you need to know to give some teeth to your prayers. And it explains where the gospel is in those countries. Like, what is the history of this country's connection to Christianity, and what is the presence of Christians in there now relative to other? groups. It's, it's a fantastic prayer guide. If you don't have a copy of it, I highly encourage you to get it, and I'd love to help you do that if necessary. Okay. Gospel-centered evangelism Trust God for results. Gospel-centered evangelism also focuses on the message of Christ. Now, I'm going to go quickly here, because this one probably sounds obvious to you anyway, but let me say that it isn't obvious, and it can't be taken for granted. Look at what Paul does in the middle of his prayer. He's praying In verse 3, that God would open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. I think what we get there is a summary of Paul's whole mission in life. His mission is to explain the mystery of Christ. What is that? This whole letter has been about what that is. It's the fact that all of our problems ultimately root in our fundamental rebellion against God. That we have traded the right submission to one king for submission to any number of other kings to serve self, to serve pleasure, to serve reputation. We've served things that have left us lacking even though they promise fulfillment. And this is a rebellion that leaves us hostile to God. It leaves us us alienated from Him and subject to the punishment that all those who have committed treason must ultimately bear. But the mystery, the mystery of Christ is that God Himself The offended party, the king against whom we have actually rebelled, enters into his kingdom, becomes one of his subjects, like his subjects, and lives a life that they couldn't have lived and dies a death that they deserve to die so that he can bring them back into peaceful submission to his kingdom. He dies so that that record of the wrongs that they committed could be wiped clean, nailed to the cross, and no longer binding on them. He died so that, in Paul's language, he could transfer these rebellious, treason, guilty subjects from the kingdom they had chosen, a kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of his Son, a kingdom of light, and a kingdom of life. That's the message of the gospel. Paul wants to declare that message. And the reason it, we can't not go with him there this morning, the reason it has to be said, is that there are lots of other good things that we could do, even things that are connected to the gospel, that fall short of this communication of the message of Christ. There are good things we can do, even things that are connected to the gospel, even things that are Christian responsibilities that fall short of our duty to communicate this gospel message. And a gospel-centered evangelism is one that knows that only this message saves. And so anything that falls short of communicating this message is one that cannot save. So, for example, works of mercy can be gospel-inspired. They can even illustrate, provide almost like a visual aid or a PowerPoint presentation for the message that we're giving. They can show what it looks like for someone to show grace to another who doesn't deserve it. Works of mercy look like the gospel. We're called to do them. But on their own, these works fall short of evangelism. They're not enough. If you never explain what it is that your actions are illustrating, you have not participated in a gospel-centered evangelism, and there's no power to save in those works of mercy as wonderful and beautiful as they can be. Holy living matters as a foundation for evangelism. But again, like works of mercy, it's important. You can't do without it. Your evangelism is going to seem cheap and it's going to seem shallow if you don't have a holiness of life along with it as a context for what you say. But on its own, just living different from those who are around you is not enough. Ultimately, it isn't the same thing because it doesn't explain that Jesus is the reason that you live this way. There are lots of people who have ethical codes that they're following, lots of different sources of motivation and strength for being faithful to those codes. And you aren't telling them anything other than that you're a disciplined person if all you do is live different from them and you never get around to explaining the message of Jesus. Gospel centered evangelism is one that focuses on the message of Christ and doesn't do without it. Third, gospel centered evangelism fosters an evangelistic lifestyle. Gospel centered evangelism fosters an evangelistic lifestyle. This is verse 5. Verse 5, Paul turns from talking about his own efforts, asking for prayer for him as he uh, looks for opportunities to speak about Jesus. He turns from his efforts to calling for things from the Colossians themselves. Here he calls them to wise living. He says in verse 5, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Now, his statement actually isn't clear immediately on the surface. What does it mean to conduct yourselves wisely, to walk in wisdom? What does it mean to make the best use of time, or maybe your translation says to redeem the opportunity? What does that mean? Walk, walking wisely could mean holiness of life, like I've just mentioned. It could mean living in a respectable manner that would make sense uh, of the gospel as something that's real and effective. And ultimately that makes sense here. But I think that in this context, given that before this verse and after this verse, both sections focus on Paul's desire to see the gospel communicated, I think what the best sense of verse five and this claim, call to walk wisely is to always be on the lookout for ways to speak the gospel to outsiders. Remember, walk with wisdom towards outsiders. I think the key to, to to connecting with this explanation of that verse is that next little clause, the, the call to make the best use of the time. Or maybe your translation says to redeem the opportunity. I think that last translation is actually the best one, because the word for time that's used here is not just the kind of time like we would say it's twelve o'clock, you know, time for kickoff. It's 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 time that's more like an opportunity. In in it's time like. The time is now. The time has come. A new era has come. Something like that. It's more about opportunity or, or, or epoch or era or, in this case, I think, a chance to speak the gospel. Walk with wisdom towards outsiders means always looking to claim an opportunity as it arises. I think what he's calling us to, in other words, is to build our lives for evangelism. It means we are constantly looking for the chance to speak of Jesus. That we're constantly trying to put ourselves in opportunities to do that in the path of those who don't know him, for instance. That we're, that we're living not in enclaves of fellow believers exclusively, but that we've inserted ourselves onto, uh, onto the turf of others. That we're actually living among outsiders as a normal walk of life. And we're constantly doing that, not complacently, but looking for opportunities to speak truth into them. Now, obviously... The reason that this matters is that it puts in perspective how some of us may have been trained in evangelism. I was trained, I remember in high school, on this wonderful system that, I, that actually I benefited from greatly. I don't want you to hear what I'm about to say as a, as a blanket criticism of this approach, but it had some negative effects on me. I was trained on, on a system that, tr- that taught me how to summarize the gospel message in a, a nice handy acronym with some important uh, verses to support each point and drove me towards a point of decision where I would call for them to make a commitment, and then I would record that and try to connect with them and follow up with it. And, and it was a once-a-week commitment. My church put this on, I think it was on Monday night maybe or Tuesday night, and we would all come together and we would get our assignments and we would go out in the community and we would, we would go see people and we would go through the gospel presentation that was at. Now, that is obviously a great thing to do. I think programmed evangelism is important. It can be very effective, particularly in some contexts. I mean, in the rural area where I grew up, it was normal to walk up to somebody's house and knock on the door and be invited in for tea or or coffee or whatever. But here's what it did to me. I think what it did to me was it taught me to, to see evangelism as something that I did on this particular night of the week. It was something that my church sponsored and that I participated in, and it was almost like a checklist item. So that once Monday night had come and gone, that check was done for the week, and I could wait till next Monday, and then I'd go do it again and check it off again and, and come back around. I, it taught me, it, it's, its biggest value was in getting me in front of people who didn't know Jesus and in giving me a nice, handy way to remember the gospel. That was wonderful. Its drawback was that it taught me not to t- treat evangelism as a lifestyle, but as something that you did at a particular time and place. It taught me to see evangelism as more of a church program even than as a way of life. Paul's calling here, I think, in this call to walk around in wisdom, to walk, around, live your life among outsiders, always looking for opportunities that you can claim. I think what he's calling us to is a lifestyle. And admittedly, that is a lot harder than the kind of evangelism I grew up on. It's harder because it involves relationships, and those relationships don't end the moment you're finished with your presentation. And it's not something that the church can do for you. It's not a program that the church sponsors and that you just come and file into, and and that's that. It's something you have to do from your own motivation and with your own resolve. But it's powerful. It's what it looks like for the kingdom to spread. Because ultimately, it's much more effective for the church to have envoys scattered all throughout a neighborhood or a city than it is for the church to bring people in bring its own to itself and then scatter them out and bring them back again it's more it's more strategic to have a permanent presence scattered throughout if you're wondering that wondering that this whether this creates complacency that also could be true it is easier to to just not do it at all and claim that it's because you don't want to do it only on this one night so therefore you just let it go But by walking wisely and redeeming opportunities, I don't think Paul means to suggest at all that you don't work to create opportunities. He wants you, I think, by by the way that he phrases this in verse 5, to be looking for ways to facilitate your evangelism. And towards that end, let me just quickly give you a few practical examples of how you could do this, of how you could work evangelistic opportunities into your lifestyle. You could participate in our church's outreach to refugee groups. And this is something that's in its earliest phases. You heard me talk about it before. We're really excited about the possibilities here. There are many different kinds of opportunities, and we've got an opening for relationship building among a group of people who have come here without any kind of ties other than what they brought with them and whatever family came along as well. There's a chance to 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 be a living example of Christ among them and ultimately to build a foundation for speaking Christ into them. There's plenty of opportunity there. Come talk to us if that's something that interests you. Another would be to uh, to do a Bible study with a coworker, worker a neighbor, a friend that you know doesn't know Jesus. One of the best ways, one of the least direct and off-putting ways to engage someone with the gospel is to just invite them, hey, you want to read some from this ancient text? And answer some questions about it together to consider some of the themes that are in it. That's that's very non-confrontational. It's there's a, there's a curriculum that we use here that we believe in that we feel like has has been used mightily before. We'd love to get that into your hands. We would even be willing to do that with you if you're not comfortable on your own. Come and talk to me or one of the elders. We will we will stage a Bible study for you with this curriculum and and help you engage this person with with hard questions about the gospel. Another opportunity, this one is very time sensitive, but it's it's a wonderful opportunity, is facilitated by a, a ministry called Interface. Interface. They they're geared up to connect internationals, especially international students, with American families. And one of their main programs is a program called First Friends. First Friends. What this does is connects American families with International students who have come here for the first time, they don't know anybody. They don't know what – most of them probably don't even know what it's like to be in an American home. And, And many of them could go through their entire experience here in America without seeing what life in an American home is like. What First Friends does is matches families to international students and gets them into American home or American lifestyle at least once a month. That's the commitment that's asked of you. To, to, to connect with the person you're matched with at least once a month for the school year from uh, September through May. Now, the sign-ups for Vandy are really coming up quickly. There are forms back here at the back that are on the resource table that you can use to sign up. And, and, and the, one of the representatives of the ministry is actually here with us this morning. Kay uh, Eves is over here. i will ask her to raise her hand so you can see her. After the service, if you want to connect with Kay, I'm sure she can answer any more questions you may have. This is exactly, though, the kind of opportunity that we're talking about. This is a lifestyle-oriented opportunity that gets people into what you would normally be doing, whether it's going shopping or going out to eat or just eating a nice meal in your home. You bring them into it, and you have a nice organic relationship that's built with this person over the course of the year. There are plenty of opportunities out there. these are only a few. The point is, don't treat evangelism as something the church does or as somebody else's responsibility It's yours, and it encompasses all your life. Finally, and much more quickly... Gospel-centered evangelism speaks about Christ appropriately. Speaks about Christ appropriately. Paul's final statement in verse 6 gives us some instruction on how to claim opportunities that emerge from evangelistic lifestyles. So it's one thing to get yourself in front of people who don't know Jesus. It's one thing to be vigilant about seeing and recognizing those opportunities and pouncing on them. It's another thing to do that, to actually claim the opportunity well to speak about Christ in a manner that's appropriate to the message you're communicating. I think that's what Paul's getting at in verse 6. He says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you want to answer each person. Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, and appropriate to each person. Your style of communication must fit the grace-filled nature of your message. Your medium has got to fit your message. Most obscure phrase in Paul's language here is probably this phrase about being seasoned with salt. Let your words be salty. I think in our context, salty language is rough language, It's coarse language. You know, it's it's the kind of stuff that's in PG thirteen movies. In Paul's context, in the other literature that was that was written around the time that this was, this language called uh, the, the language being referred to as salty, seasoned with salt, typically meant that it was witty. It was winsome. It was, it was persuasive language, pleasant to hear. I think combined with Paul's call for our language to be gracious, to be full of grace, is that our, when we speak about Jesus, it's supposed to leave a good taste in the mouth. When you speak about Christ, you're supposed to speak with respect and persuasiveness. It's the kind of speech that takes the individual person into account and addresses the gospel directly to them and where they are and what kinds of questions they're asking. It addresses gospel truth in a way that's appropriate and most likely to connect with that specific person. And the first thing I thought whenever I was trying to understand this particular passage, coming to understand it in this way, was how does this connect with places like 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul says that our message is always going to be foolishness? People aren't going to want to hear this. If you you, you want to speak in, in persuasive words of of wisdom and, and beautiful oratory, then you're, you're not speaking in a manner appropriate to the gospel and you're, you're running down a, a dead-end street. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 1. He, he prefers to embrace being thought of as foolish. So how does that connect with him saying here that our words are supposed to leave a good impression, to taste good in the mouths of those that hear them and receive them? I think it has everything to do with emphasis and purpose, what Paul is getting at in each place. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul was writing against those who were most concerned about their reputation. Remember, it was all about status for them. They wanted to they wanted to affiliate with Paul over Apollos or Apollos over Paul based on what they thought that would do to them and their position in the community. They wanted words that fit with the rhetorical expectations of that era. They looked they were looking for status, and they were not prone to do anything that was going to take away from that status. So, where the gospel message didn't fit well in the culture that they were addressing, they would probably just Rain it in a little bit. Make it a little sweeter to the taste. Paul called them to forget about being thought of well, to, to forget about what kind of status you might be able to get from the gospel and to embrace foolishness. Here, his purpose is different. Here, it seems like what he's saying is that when you are counting the cost, when you are speaking of Christ, don't make your manner of speaking, don't make your manner of speaking a cause for offense, the gospel itself is offensive enough. It's a message that tells us we're helpless, that we bring nothing to the table except our own sin, that we de- deserve nothing except a judgment that's reserved for those who committed treason. That's what the gospel tells us. That's an offensive message, especially in a self reliant time like, our, like ours is. There's no getting rid of that offense but there's also no reason to add to it by presenting it in a way that's also offensive. I think what Paul's saying is that you don't, you don't talk about the gospel as if you loved the fact that some people are going to be judged, as if you just really connected with the fact that some people would not believe in Jesus and, and be judged for their sin. What he's, what he's calling us to is not to present the gospel in a way that acts like we're better than unbelievers, as if we figured out some truth that they weren't smart enough to figure out, right? It's condescending and arrogant because it treats our commitment to Jesus as if it was something we arrived at by our own powers of deductive reasoning and something they were not up to the task of accomplishing. He means we shouldn't use lingo. That seems like foreign language. Or speaking categories that make, don't make sense to somebody who's never entered a church building. Those are, those are ways of presenting the gospel that don't fit the message we're presenting, that don't communicate the warmth, the grace, the openness, and the, the inviting nature of what it is that we're communicating. And so they don't fit the message. Rather, speaking words that are seasoned by salt, words that, as verse 6 says, are directed to each individual person, answering them as they ought to be answered. That means... Communicating the timeless gospel in a way that fits our specific context. It means being plugged into the world that's around us. It doesn't mean sharing its values. It doesn't mean capitulating to what it's after. But it means understanding it. It means connecting with it and sympathizing with it. It means... Being students of culture, critical of the evil that's in it, but not not as escapists, not as those who are condescending towards it, who are unable to recognize beauty and good that's in it or sympathize with the things that it's longing for. We're not of the world. We are not of the world, but we are certainly in the world. And communicating the gospel effectively as those who are in the world means understanding it on its own terms, understanding what it's after, what it's not seeing fulfilled, so that we can speak the gospel into it as the answer that they've been looking for. Every culture has different questions. We've got to figure out what ours are. We've got to see how the gospel tar- targets each individual person. One of the main influences on me and my ministry um, philosophy is this guy named John Stott, who's only, who recently passed away just a couple weeks ago. John Stott wrote a book called The Contemporary Christian, one of my favorites on ministry and just living as a Christian in, as, as part of a, a, a citizen of another world but living in this one still. Here's, what, here's how he described what I, how I understand Paul's instructions here. He called it double listening, double listening. You've got to listen to the word, the gospel itself, be faithful to that. Don't do anything to, to take away from it. But you also have to listen to the culture so that you can know how to speak the gospel into effect. Like double listening. This is what he said in Contemporary Christian. We listen to the word with humble reverence, anxious to understand it, and resolve to believe and obey what we come to understand. That's one kind of listening. We listen to the world with critical alertness, anxious to understand it too, resolved not necessarily to believe and to obey it, but to sympathize with it and to seek grace to discover how the gospel relates to it. Double listening. We listen to the word. It's our authority. We must understand it, submit to it with humility and joy. But we also listen to the world. We hear what it's after. We hear what it's missing. We speak the gospel into it. This is a text on evangelism, on how the gospel shapes our posture towards those who don't follow Jesus as we live very much in the world on somebody else's turf. And it's timely for us because we are nearing the end of our first year as a congregation, looking ahead to our next year as a church. And this first year, as as those of you especially who have been around for a while know, it's been about survival. It's been about how to f- figure out how to pull off a Sunday service each week figuring out how to navigate the junk that would be waiting for us in this room when we got here, which is a different collection every Sunday. Year two, we recognize very deeply, has got to be about building out our presence in mission in this city and throughout the world. Our focus and emphasis on how we take the fruits of the community we are building by God's grace and extend it to other people. That's going to be a huge emphasis for us this year. It's going to influence how we build out local ministry partnerships. It's going, to, uh, it's going to be emphasized in an entire month given to it later on this fall. I want to put that on your radar so you can be thinking about it and praying towards it. But this church will only ever be as strong in evangelism as its individual members. Ultimately, we can't do this for you as church leaders. Analyze your life. Do you pray? Do you trust that the results are God's? Do you communicate the truth of Christ or do you settle for something less? Do you organize your life around opportunities to connect with those who don't follow Jesus? Are you working towards better and better proficiency at speaking the gospel, the timeless gospel, in a way that's appropriate to our time, to our unique culture? Those are the questions that this text leaves us with this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for a gospel that transforms, that doesn't hold our sins against us or, re- or require us to come to you by our own power, but that meets us while we're still dead and gives us life, that meets us while we're still enemies and doesn't strike us down, but wins us over to reconciliation with you. That's, that's a mystery that we could never have thought up on our own. We thank you for the insight. We're able to get into it through this beautiful letter that Paul wrote so many Years ago, we thank you that it continued to speak today. We pray for hearts now that would respond to it with humility and joy. We pray that its message would hang over us, would be ever in our our minds and before our eyes. We pray for the faithfulness to obey. Would you bring into our path those who don't know you and give us a deep longing to see them come to know you. Would you give us wisdom to speak in a manner that's appropriate to each person? Would you protect us from ourselves, from the arrogance that so often influences everything that we say? Would you make this a year of revival for us, we pray. And we pray to you in confidence because of Jesus. Amen.